We're going to look at the book of James together over the next several weeks. So if you have your own Bible, uh, turn to James. If you need a Bible, get uh, Len's attention, and he'll get one to you so that you can look at the book of James with us. And let me encourage you to continue to look at the program so that you know what's coming up on our calendar. Got a pretty lively calendar most of the time, and uh, this next month or so is no exception, so please uh, pay attention to it. We've got a vow renewal ceremony coming up on August 22nd. If you are interested in that, even if you're not taking the marriage classes, which obviously you're not if you're sitting in here, but uh, if you would like to renew your vows, then we'd love to have you participate, but I need to know that, so there's a sign-up sheet on the information table to that effect. August the 8th is a Saturday, and that is uh, our road rally. We are having a uh, video road rally for our adults, so if you have children, you'll need to make arrangements for them that night, but the video road rally will be a great time. That's Saturday the 8th at uh, 4 o'clock. We'll be meeting at First Baptist of Gibraltar, and it's a good time for you to bring someone uh, to meet our folks. It would be a, a great outreach opportunity for you. So. Keep an eye on stuff like that that's uh, coming up in the life of the church, okay? These next seven weeks, the marriage classes are going to be meeting, and so we will have our own series for these seven weeks that I'm going to do a survey through the, the book of James. Uh, now, I'm only going to have actually six weeks with you because two weeks from today, uh, we won't be around. Me and my family will be gone uh, to Canada, uh, New Brunswick, Canada. And we did that a few summers ago, some of you remember, and uh, we're going to do that again. So we're very much looking forward to that. I hope the uh, prisons in Canada are locked pretty securely. <laughs> but uh, barring anything like that, we'll be gone for a good bit, but only missing one Sunday, though, and it'll be Sunday, uh, August the 2nd. That's two weeks from today. And uh, the preaching time for the next four weeks is going to be our pastors and training guys. You all know that. So seven weeks while the marriage classes are going on, we'll be in with a smaller group here together, and we'll be going through the book of James for six of those seven weeks. All right? Let me introduce the book of James uh, this way. That uh, one of the fallacies that many people uh, uh, arrive at when folks like us teach the biblical truth of justification by faith alone. When we teach that biblical truth, like I was pounding on during the first hour, that you are justified right before God by faith alone and not by works, one of the false conclusions that folks run to then is that works then don't matter at all. That is, if I'm justified before God because I believe in, in what Jesus did for me, and what Jesus did is applied to me, so I'm guaranteed that I'm going directly to heaven when I die, then why do I care about works? And yet the Bible has a lot to say about the behavior of believers. That those who are genuinely believers, those who have faith, which is what the New Testament word for faith is, it's belief. So if you have faith, it means you're a believer. It means you believe who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You believe the Bible is the word of God. You are an adherent of what Scripture calls the faith, the body of doctrine, the body of teaching that is given to us in Scripture. You're a believer. You believe that body of doctrine about Jesus, about the gospel, and the other things that the Bible clearly teaches. Those who have that faith, though, work. 
Those who believe behave. So this book, the book of James, has been variously titled, you know, Faith Works. That's a pretty cool title. Faith works in a lot of ways. Faith works to get you to heaven. But those who have faith work. Or the behavior of belief. I taught this class years ago at our parent church through the book of James, and that's what I titled the class, The Behavior of Belief. Belief behaves. It actually does stuff. So it's not just I say I believe and then nothing happens. But you can see why people jump to that false conclusion. We adamantly maintain that the Bible teaches that we're justified before God, not by what we do, but by what we believe. Or more accurately, who we believe in. And so they jump to the conclusion, and some well-meaning Christians have jumped to the conclusion that, in effect, what we do doesn't matter. And the Bible refutes that throughout. And certainly the book of James refutes the notion that it doesn't matter whether and how you behave simply because you're a Christian. As a matter of fact, if you are a Christian, then certain behavior should follow. Not to get you to heaven, but because you're going to heaven. So forgive me for not having this on the screen. I was told they were going to take all of the projectors, but I was lied to. So had I known we would have a projector, I would have put this on the screen. So sorry. Not only did they take all the projectors, they didn't take any projectors. Okay. Anyway, that's what I was told, honest. Ask Larry. So just try to follow this, this formula. Here's what those who deny justification by faith alone teach. Those who deny it. Those who, like our Roman Catholicism, deny that you're justified only by, by faith. Those who deny that have a formula that goes like this. Faith plus works equals justification. You believe and you work, you'll be justified. You'll go to heaven. That's what those who deny faith alone teach. It's not faith alone, it's faith plus work equals justification. Everybody good with that? But then folks run to a false conclusion about those of us who believe in faith alone to say we believe, here's the erroneous formula, another erroneous formula. It's not faith plus work equals justification. It's faith minus work equals justification. That we don't care at all about works, that works have no place in our teaching, and that is erroneous as well. So what's the right formula? If faith plus works equals justification is wrong, and it is, because it's not faith and works, and if faith minus works equals justification is wrong, and it is, as we're going to see from the book of James, then what is the right formula? It's this. Faith equals justification plus works. That the person who believes is justified fully before God, but that person is also changed such that they behave differently. And they don't, don't go to heaven because of their behavior. But if they don't have that behavior, there's reason to question whether they've actually believed. 
So the proper formula is faith results in faith equals, yes, justification. We are right before God because he counts, credits, imputes what Jesus did to us when we believe who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But that person who is justified now is a changed person. And they act different. They live different. And the Bible says that in a number of places and and perhaps no place more emphatically than in the entire five chapters of the book of James. James absolutely insists that if you say you believe, then you are going to follow up that belief with your behavior. And if if you don't have the behavior, then it's evidence you don't have the faith. Now, why do I say that? Because in probably the most famous passage of many in this small letter, in chapter 2 of James, notice what he says. James chapter 2. And I'm using one of these Bibles with the small print that we give away. Not because I don't have my own, I do. But so that I can give you the page number in case you need it. It's 673. Someone just gave me the page number, apparently thinking I need it. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Page 673, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, verse 16, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, you're feeling kind of schizophrenic at this point, aren't you? Because... The 9.30 hour, I'm just haranguing about it. It's faith alone and the gospel and the purity of the gospel and it's a denial of the gospel if you don't believe in faith alone. And now we're going to teach on James. And one of James' central tenets is that faith, belief, is evidenced by, by work. How do you fit those two things together? We were looking in the 9.30 hour at Romans chapter 4. We're not going to return there now. We were looking at it then. But if you weren't with us or you forgot, I encourage you to take a look at that. But here's what Paul says there. He says that now, when a man works, his wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. That's verse 4. But then in verse 5, he says, but to the person who does not work, but believes, has faith, God credits his faith as righteousness. goes on to tell us that God justifies then, not those who are good, but the wicked, it says. That God justifies people who are sinful because they believe in the one who was not sinful. So how do you harmonize these two things? Romans chapter 4 is saying, clearly, it's faith alone apart from works. I think we all get that. But then you got James saying... Faith, if not accompanied by works, is dead. How do you harmonize them? Here's, here's how you harmonize those. You need to recognize, we need to recognize, that Paul, who wrote Romans 4, and James, who wrote James 2, are answering two different questions. 
The question that Paul is answering in Romans chapter 4 is this. Here's the question. How is a man justified or a woman justified before God? And the answer is faith alone. But James is answering a different question. He buys what Paul teaches because they both follow the same Lord. They're both apostles of the same Jesus. He buys, James does, what Paul teaches that a person is justified before God by faith alone. But he's answering now this question. Yes, it's by faith alone, but here's the question. What kind of faith justifies? You're justified by faith alone, but what kind of faith? And James' answer is, it's the kind of faith that displays itself in what it does. The what it does is not what justifies you, but the faith that justifies is followed up by consistent behavior. Now, why do I say that that's the question that James is answering? Let's read again in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can, and here's the key word. Notice he doesn't say just can faith save. It's not just can faith save him. It's can such faith save him. Can that kind of faith save him? The question he's answering is not what justifies you. That's already been answered. We already know the answer to that throughout Scripture. It's belief, faith in Jesus and what Jesus did. It's faith alone. But then the question is, what kind of faith does that? Can such faith save anyone? A faith that is not accompanied, followed up by works. And his answer is no. So we're justified before God by faith alone. But Martin Luther said it this way. We're justified by a faith that does not remain alone. You're justified by faith alone, but it doesn't remain alone. It's accompanied by behavior consistent with what we believe. And so James is all about now how we demonstrate the faith that we claim. And the entire theme of the five chapters of the book of James is this. Tests of a living faith. Testing what you really believe. Testing what I really believe through various means. And there are nine of them that he gives in those five chapters. Now, why do I say it's tests of a living faith? Look at chapter 1. And verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. Here's why, verse 3. Because you know something. Here's what you know. The testing of your faith. You see that in verse 3? James James is talking about what you believe, your faith, being tested. And the book gives a number of tests that reveal what you and I really believe. Uh, well, that's ugly. 
I'd prefer to just go with what I say I believe and not have to take the test. But the book of James, the theme of the book of James is tests of a living, vital, active faith. Tested in various ways. His central theme is in chapter 2, that faith will be accompanied by works. It's never alone. The kind of faith which alone justifies is a faith that works. And now he's going to give a number of tests of what you believe and what I believe. And I said there are nine of them. I'll just bump through what they are here, and we'll go through them over the next few weeks together. But there is living faith tested by trials. That's the first one. You read it in, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. And then it's going to go all the way down to verse 18. Tested by trials, but our faith is also tested at the end of chapter 1 by our approach to Scripture. That's the second one. Trials, Scripture. That's chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Then you come to chapter 2, you have a third test. Our faith tested by partiality. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, partiality. When we get there, you're going to see that it's all about how we treat other people and do we show favoritism. The fourth test is faith and its relationship to works in general. That's chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Fifth, faith tested regarding wisdom and the demonstration of wisdom. That's found in chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. The sixth of the nine tests are faith tested with regard to worldliness. Worldliness. That's in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. The sixth one is faith and pride. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Almost done. There's an interlude when you get to the beginning of chapter 5, issuing a warning to wealthy people. And then he resumes the tests with the eighth test in chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Faith tested with regard to perseverance. And then last... The end of the book, chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, faith tested with regard to prayer. So you've got these nine tests of the genuineness, the authenticity, the reality of what we say we believe. As it relates to trials, as it relates to scripture, partiality, works in general, wisdom, worldliness, pride, perseverance, and prayer. Nine of them in these five chapters. We're going to look at those then together. So everybody good? The Bible teaches, and James emphatically teaches, yes, it's faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. It's a faith that issues forth in what we do, in works. And he's now going to give a number of tests of the, of the vitality, whether our, our faith is really alive or dead. That's what vital means. It's alive. Are there vital signs of your faith? Is there evidence that it's really alive? That it's really the kind of faith, such faith, that saves? 
and he gives a number of tests for that that we're going to look at together in the weeks to come. So who is this guy that wrote the book? Chapter 1 and verse 1 tells you it's James. And he's writing to, verse 1, the 12 tribes which are scattered throughout the nations. So who is James? Well, it turns out James is the half-brother of Jesus. And since I was talking a good bit about Roman Catholicism in the first hour, that Jesus would have any brothers would come as a surprise to our Roman Catholic friends, would it not? Because in Roman Catholicism, Mary is said to be the ever-virgin. In fact, you'll hear her called that, the ever-virgin Mary. Roman Catholicism teaches something called the perpetual virginity of Mary. That Mary never had any other children. That she never had physical intercourse with her, with her husband Joseph. That she remained a virgin throughout her life, not just at the time Jesus was conceived and born, but thereafter. But the Bible teaches otherwise. The fact that you've got a guy like James who is the Lord's brother. You say, well, how do you know he's the Lord's brother? Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19. Galatians 1 and verse 19, he's called that very thing. James, the Lord's brother. Whoa, the Bible just out and out refers to somebody as Jesus' brother. Well, are we talking about him being his his physical brother sharing the, the same uh, mom and dad, although Jesus, of course, conception and birth was miraculous? And the answer to that is yes. Now, how do I know this? Mark chapter 6. You might want to look at Mark chapter 6. James is the Lord's brother. He is called the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19. In Mark chapter 6, here's what the Bible says. Verse 1. Mark 6 and verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, it's page 556, by the way. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of? And then you just got a whole list of people, including somebody named James. And Joseph and Judas and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And one of those brothers was James. And James was one of the apostles. James was one of the first leaders of the church. If you want to see James really rise to prominence, you can read in Acts chapter 15 in your Bible. Acts chapter 15, there was a big meeting of the church. Because they had an issue that they need to discuss in the fledgling new thing called the church. 
You had people who still believed that folks, in order to be initiated into the church, needed to follow the Old Testament laws regarding circumcision, for instance. So they had to discuss this. And so they have a meeting, and the apostles come to Jerusalem. And who presides in this meeting? None other than James. Prominent in the most prominent church in the early church, Jerusalem. So as you read in Acts chapter 15, it's James, the apostle, the Lord's brother. Galatians 1.19, he's called that. And he's written a book in your New Testament. And so this book is written by James, who is one of several of the Lord's brothers, despite what our Roman Catholic friends teach about the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. The Bible teaches otherwise. This James is writing to test the genuineness, the reality, the authenticity of the faith, the belief that we claim to have. And he does it with the various nine sets of tests that I gave to you just a bit ago. So the first of those is with regard to trials. Verse number two, a living faith and trials. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever... You face trials of many kinds. That's verse 2. Well, what is in that one little verse, it's packed as it talks to us about trials. And I've given you these four characteristics of trials from James 1, 2 in the past. So some of you have heard these before. But here's what, in just that one verse, just those few words, James tells us about this issue of of trials. The first thing he tells us is that they are unavoidable. Because it's worded this way, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when, whenever. Notice it's not if. That's because life in a fallen world will, not may, absolutely will have trials. Trials, then, are part of our lot in life living in a fallen world. They are unavoidable whenever they happen, not if they happen. And so, probably if there's one quote that I've heard the congregation give back to me over the years, it's this one. That you are always either in a trial, or you've just recently emerged from a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. And the reason I say that is because of verses like James 1-2. That being the case, and it is the case, you've experienced it in your life, the Bible teaches it. Since these, since these trials are ubiquitous, I have no idea what that means. I've just always wanted to say ubiquitous. This means they're everywhere. Since, they, since they're ubiquitous, they're, they're everywhere, then... Rather than trying to just run from them all the time, wouldn't it be a good idea for us to learn how to handle them? You know, the truth of the matter is, since they're everywhere, when you run from the one, you run into another. But we think the solution to trials most of the time is to get out of, get me out of this. But James is saying that these trials are designed by God to produce something good, we're going to see as you read on in verses 3 and 4. They're designed to produce maturity. But we want to get out of the thing before God produces the fruit that he has designed in that circumstance for us. 
in our lives are over and over again just trying to get out of one difficult circumstance after another. It would be wise for each of us to step back and to say, since these trials are everywhere, since this is my lot in life living in a fallen world, then what I ought to do is rather than just escape and run, I ought to learn to live within the difficulty of the circumstances. And so they are first unavoidable. They're everywhere. Second, in that verse, he tells us they're unplanned. Here's how it goes. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever, and then it says, you, you face or you, you fall. Some translations say you fall, some say you face trials. Now that word that is fall or face is the same word that's used in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. You all remember that parable? And you have a guy who was traveling and he's beaten and he's robbed and he's left for dead. And you have people go by him, including a religious type, a priest, but they can't get involved. But finally, the guy who helps is none other than a hated Samaritan. The Samaritans were despised because they were half-breed Jews. The religious leaders to whom Jesus was giving that parable hated Samaritans, and the guy that Jesus chooses to be the hero of his story is a Samaritan. Not a religious leader. Jesus had one of him just skating by, them skating by. The good Samaritan, the Samaritan helps him out. But here's what it says about that traveler. It says, he fell among thieves. It's the same word that's in James chapter 1 and verse 2. You could translate it, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall among trials. It pictures somebody just skating along through life, minding their own business, and wham! Ambushed. Jumped. So they're unplanned, unexpected. They just happen. Can you identify with that? One phone call can change everything, can it? One wrong turn on the road can change everything, can it? One diagnosis can change everything. One pink slip can change everything. The list goes on and on. Because they're unplanned, they're unexpected. They happen. Trials happen. Stuff happens in a fallen world. Bad stuff happens. Now, if you are somebody whose happiness then depends on what happens, and verse 2 of James chapter 1 is true, and of course it is, that these things are ubiquitous, they're, they're unavoidable, it's when, not if, and you just fall into them as you're skating along, if that's the case, if you're somebody whose happiness depends on what happens, you're going to be in big trouble, aren't you? Because what's happening is usually lousy, just to be blunt. Your vacation gets messed up because there are guys who escape. What are the chances of that? You plan, you plan for six months to go to this beach house on Lake Michigan 
And the morning after your family arrives, these three guys escape from a maximum security prison. Two murderers and a serial rapist. Not your garden variety shoplifters, these guys. And your vacation's messed up. If your happiness depends on what happens, you're going to be messed up, aren't you? But isn't that the way most of us are? And the God is telling you that. I'm telling you ahead of time. And you've experienced enough of life, you should have gotten it by now, that what happens is often not to your liking. So that's why the command is, consider it joy. Because James readers and you and me need to be reminded that this is the way it is. This is life in the fallen world. So in that one verse, he's told us they're unavoidable, they're unplanned, unexpected. He's also told us they're unwanted. How? Because consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face, and then the word is trials. They're trials. They're not, they're, they're tough. They're not good. They're not, they're not good circumstances. They're hard circumstances. That's why they're called trials. That's what a trial is. Difficult. You don't want it, and I don't want it. And it's okay not to want the thing. I mean, you, you got something wrong with you if you, if you want pain. You know, when, when Paul was going to be arrested and he knew that they were going to arrest him, guess what he did? He got out of Dodge. So it wasn't that he wanted the pain, but he understood the bigger picture. Yes, these things are unwanted, but the truth is they're going to come. They came to Paul. They came to Jesus. They've come to you. They will continue to come to you this side of heaven. So the best thing we can do is learn to deal with them. He's told us four things. They're unavoidable, unplanned, and unexpected. They are unwanted. And then the last thing is, the fourth thing, is they're unlimited. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, difficult circumstances, but notice, of various kinds, of many kinds. The King James says, when you face divers temptations. Anybody have a King James? Okay, am I right? It says divers temptations. Some of you have heard me tell this before, but I uh, heard about a guy through a friend who was actually there at a Bible study, and they were using the King James, and they were looking at this, and they read that divers temptations. One of the guys in the Bible study just said, yeah, you know, I guess when you think about it, divers do have a lot of temptations. So he thought the verse was talking about temptations that belong to people who dive, divers. So why does it say that in the King James? Divers temptations. Because the word is diverse. Diverse. Many. Various. All kinds. And that's why I say they're unlimited. And that's why the NIV says of various kinds. Of many kinds. They come in all shapes and varieties. Some of them are of the diagnosis variety. Some of them are of the pink slip variety. Some of them are of the two-legged variety. Walking upright. Sometimes it's a person who is the trial. There are various kinds. It's some difficult person in your life. 
They come in all shapes and sizes. They are unlimited in their varieties, in their diversity. And James' command is, as you test the reality of your faith, consider it pure joy. When these unavoidable and unexpected, unplanned, and unwanted, and unlimited things happen, consider it pure joy. Now, how can you do that? Well, you can do it if you really believe. If your, if your belief, if your faith is real, you can consider it pure joy. Because verse 3 says, because you know something. Isn't that how verse 3 starts? Because you know. Here's why you can consider it pure joy. Because you know. You know that God is up to something good here. You know that the testing of your faith that comes in the form of these trials, you know that the testing of your faith develops patience, perseverance. And perseverance, when it is completed its work, develops maturity. To put it another way, you know that you serve a God who is sovereign over the thing and the person, who is sovereign over the trial, who's sovereign over this difficult circumstance. You know that. And you know that this God who is great because he's sovereign over it, he's in control of it, is also a good God. He's great and he's good. So he doesn't just know about it. He doesn't just design it. That's all true. But he has a good intention in this thing. You know that. That the testing of what you believe, that's what faith is, the testing of what you believe develops perseverance, which produces maturity if you have Real, authentic, genuine, living, vital faith. That's what happens. But what if you don't? What if you don't see those trials as from the hand of God? And that God has a good thing in this? Well, we failed the test. And the trial, now hear this carefully. The trial that God intended for good ends becomes a temptation that Satan uses to lead you to sin. Let me say it again. The trial that God intends for good ends becomes a temptation that Satan uses to lead you to sin. That's why when you get down to verse 13 of James chapter 1, verse 13. Starts out this way. When tempted, doesn't it? No one should say, God is tempting me. Hmm. Now here's how that's connected back up to verse 2. Here's how. Remember I said the King James in verse 2 says, when you fall into diverse temptations, and it uses the word temptations rather than trials. 
And now down in verse 13, it says, when tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me. Here's why. The same word translated trials in verse 2 is translated tempted in verse 13. It's the same word. Now, to me, this, is a, this, this was a helpful insight for me. When I came to realize that the same exact circumstance can be for one person a trial that leads to maturity and can be for another person a temptation that leads to sin. The exact same circumstance. And you know what the difference is? How they respond to it. See, guys and gals, it is not what we always act like. It's not, see, you don't understand. You don't understand what I go through. I've got trials. The reason I'm miserable and not obeying the command of verse 2 to be joyful is because i got trials. And if you had trials, you'd be miserable too. But here's the deal. We all got them, don't we? Every last one of us, they're ubiquitous. They're unplanned, they're unwanted, they're unlimited. We've all got them. It's not you've got them and I don't. It's how we respond to them. The same circumstance, which for one person can be a trial that leads to maturity, for another person becomes a temptation that leads to sin. And the difference is how we react to it. So how can I consider it pure joy? Well, I can consider it pure joy when I remember what it is that I believe. You might want to cross-reference Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you don't want to turn, you can just write it down or remember it or listen to the recording. Write it down later. And here's what Romans 5 says. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. All right, I'm going to read on. But James chapter 1 and verse 2, consider it joy, rejoice. When you face trials. And here Paul now, different Bible writer, but he's saying the same thing. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. We have joy in our sufferings because of what we know. Same thing James said, didn't he? Consider it pure joy because you know. You know that the testing of your faith produces. Paul says, rejoice, be joyful in your sufferings because we know that suffering produces something. Produces the same thing James talked about, perseverance. And perseverance, he goes on to delineate, produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has, has given. As I endure the difficult circumstances, as you endure the difficult circumstances that a good God places in your path for his good ends, and you endure them, you persevere in them because of what you know, because of what you believe, because of what you have faith in, more because of who you have faith in. When I endure in that, when I persevere in that, the next time it comes, I'm better equipped for the battle, am I not? That's why it says perseverance produces character. I'm solidifying now as I do that my character. 
Next time, I'm still, it's still a battle. It's always a battle, but I'm better equipped for the battle. I've been there. I've done that. God is stealing me. He is, he is strengthening me. Having gone through now, I will go through better. And then that character produces hope. And in the Bible, hope is a confident expectation of the fulfillment of God's promise. I see this is working. I see I'm getting better at this. I'm learning this. This character of mine is becoming stronger. And that develops hope, a confidence. God is absolutely at work in this. What God says is true. I have a confident expectation that what he has said is going to come to pass. Romans 5 and verse 3. And so we're going to, over the next several weeks, be looking at the book of James. Tests of a living, vital, active, genuine, real faith. And James says that faith is to be accompanied by, by works. And then he gives us these nine tests, the first of which is our reaction to, to trials. Next week, I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at his examples of trials. He talks about uh, if you're in difficult economic circumstances. The brother of low degree, that's what the King James says. Let him rejoice in that he is exalted. That's the way he should react. But then the, the person who has means also has a circumstance that can be a temptation if not used properly. So I'll talk a little bit about those, and then we'll begin to look at uh, verse 19, which talks about a living faith and its reaction and approach to Scripture. Okay? Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for this look into your word and for these profound words from your servant James. And Lord, uh, only the true and living God could tell us the profound things that you say in Scripture and then work in our hearts to make them actually come to pass, to make them a reality. Lord, it is completely opposite, completely opposite, the wisdom of the world to say have joy in difficult circumstances. It only makes sense if there is a great and good God who is on the throne and who is working in all circumstances, good, bad, and ugly, to develop good things in his people. But Lord, you do, have said and you are doing that very thing. You've called us out of the world and to yourself. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. And you've caused your word, though it is profoundly opposite what the world teaches. It resonates with us because our hearts are attuned to your word and what you say. And we know then the truth of what Scripture says. This perseverance develops character and in turn develops hope. As our brother James has said, it develops patience that, that produces maturity. We know that. We believe that. Our hearts resonate with that. Help us, Lord, to begin to practice that consistently. This week, help me, help us as your people to think about the trials that you have allowed to come into our lives of whatever variety. Perhaps it's a person, perhaps it's a health issue, perhaps it's a, it's a job issue, whatever it is, perhaps it's all of those. Help us to be reminded and begin to practice. We can, we must be joyful if we really believe that a good and great God is on the throne and working in this thing. Glorify yourself in us this week and bring us back together safely next Lord's Day. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.